two Jews, three opinions. That's what they say, right? We'll discover that when you mix Torah into that, you get 600,000 Jews and a single mind. That's what happened when the Jews camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, ready to receive the Torah, and it really tells us what the Torah is all about. When the Pasuk tells us that the Jewish people in singular camped at the foot of the mountain, throughout the rest of the Torah, it's always in the plural. They traveled, they camped. No, the reason for that is because because they traveled in a state of dispute and they settled in a place in a space of dispute. But here's an exception. They all were equal in having a shared single heart ready to receive the Torah. That's the Mechilta. Rashi quotes it, but differently. Rashi quotes it, but switches things around, saying, There at the mountain the Jews camped, like one person sharing a single heart. But anywhere else where the Jews camped, that was with harumas with machloikas, it was with grumblings and with disputes. So now, if you have a look at the Lashen the Mechilta uses, it emerges, that the innovation the Torah is telling us is, here at the foot of Sinai, that here there was something new that we hadn't ever seen before, the Jews all united as one, without all of the dispute and rabble-rousing that we saw elsewhere. Um, Whereas Rashi seems to say things from a different perspective, that actually the surprising insight, which we get from this Pasuk, is the other way around. The fact that Rashi says, but everywhere else was in dispute. We only realize that now. So according to the Mechilta, it's obvious that everybody was in a state of Mechilkes wherever they went. Here the surprise is that they were united. Rashi is saying the fact that the Torah tells us here they were united alerts us to the fact that they were fighting and arguing everywhere else. So we need to understand what lies behind the different approaches of the Mechilta and Rashi. Simplest way to say it is, but Pashtus, must be a different way of deriving from the Pasuk the information that we need. In fact, there's a Sikha previously in this Chedek where the Rebbe speaks about this in a lot of detail, the preceding Sikha. So, what alerts the Mechilta to the fact that there was usually dispute when the Jews were traveling around? The language that's typically used. The fact that wherever we talk about the movements and camping of the Jewish people, it's always in the plural. So that alerts the Mechilta to the fact that they're a fractured group of people. And if they're normally a fractured group of people, then then what catches our attention is the fact that here it is described differently. Here they camp in the singular, which tells us that here something unique happened and they were all equally sharing a single heart. Now, if you have a look at the Rashi's interpretation, he actually doesn't quote the fact that elsewhere in the Torah it's always referred to them camping and traveling in the plural. The reason Rashi doesn't do that is because it doesn't really prove the point that there's a fracture. Because you could say, Rashi takes the simplest understanding of the Pasuk. The simplest understanding is when you're talking about many people, you use a plural, and it, there's no sinister overtones. So Rashi is alerted to the fact that there's information about their unity or otherwise. He gets that information from this passage because it says, Yisrael, because the Torah uses what appears to be an extra word. They camped there, the Jewish people, at the foot of the mountain. Because it would appear to us that that word sham is an unnecessary extra word in the Pasuk. The Pasuk could have said very simply, they camped in the desert, and the Jewish people camped where? Against the mountain or at the foot of the mountain. So the fact that there's the word sham, that is an exclusion of other places, that the type of camping that happened over here is different elsewhere. That's what tells Rashi to pay attention to the fact, that Rashi tells us to pay attention to the fact that here is an unusual place at the foot of the mountain where they're camped in a singular form, like one person with one heart. And from that we can extrapolate that elsewhere obviously did not have that sense of unity and there must have been fracture and disputes. 
Okay, now if that's true, we have a big burning question about the Mechilta. We have to understand where the Mechilta is coming from. What is it that prompted the Mechilta to say that because there's a plural language which is expected to use about a large group of people, why would the Mechilta jump to the conclusion that it indicates that there is a division between those people? And while we're about it, there's another question to raise about the Mechilta, because when the Mechilta comments on that initial journey that the Jews took to leave Ramses to go to Sukhois on their way out of Mitzrayim, there the Mechilta says that that happened Keherifayim, like this, in a flash, a blink of an eye. In a flash, the Jewish people moved from Ramses to Sukkos, and that fulfills Hashem's promise that he was going to carry us out on the wings of eagles. Now, if they all moved in one shot, if everybody moves so swiftly, that indicates that they are not divided and that they're not in a state of dispute. So following the logic of the Mechilta, that if the Torah expresses how they traveled in the plural, it means that they traveled as a divided group. Why there? They were not divided. According to the Mechilta, Vayusu is a word that indicates division, and the way the Mechilta explains that trip, it doesn't sound like they were divided. They were moved in one swift motion. And then we also have a question about Rashi, Omidach Rashi Rashi's interpretation also leaves us with a question because Lama of Sham. Why, in fact, did the Torah use this extra word Sham? Which would then alert us to the fact that throughout the rest of the forty years of journeying through the desert, the Jewish people were divided. Why would that information be relevant to our story now, which is the story of receiving the Torah? To know that there's machloikas the rest of the time, especially considering that it's hadgoshas gnusim that it's actually speaking negatively about the Jewish people, that everywhere else, the rest of the time, they were divided. So, it's all going to boil down to reminding ourselves how Rashi interprets Torah versus Midrashic sources like the Mechilta. And Rashi is always going to look at the most simple, direct translation of terminology. Rashi, who as we know, Rashi's interpretation always comes from the angle of Pshat. If Rashi is using simplistic language and saying that there is division, he means there's literally division. There's discord. There's debate. There's fighting going on in the community. So if you're coming from the perspective that Tarumas and Machloikas means literally people are fighting with each other, then there's nothing to indicate in the word they traveled or they camped that they were necessarily fighting. Because there's nothing about a plural word that automatically means discord. So it's only here in our Pasuk where the Torah alerts us to the fact that only there at the foot of Mount Sinai did they all camp as one. Then we get new information that it's only at that point when they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai that they were completely united. And therefore we can deduce everywhere else was far less unified and much more at, at odds. Whereas the Mechilta, which is a Midrashic source, which doesn't necessarily have to take words at face value, when you use the expression Machloikas division, it's It's not that there's rabble-rousing, fighting, rebellion, God forbid. It just means something which is not absolute unity, including the possibility of that there are different opinions, two Jews, three opinions. The Mechilta says everywhere they went, there were many opinions. Because they wish to create us all to have independent minds. If a major group of people all has to do the same thing, it's only natural that they'll have many, many different views and opinions of how to do the same thing. From a Mechilta's perspective, that's why every time the Jews travel or camp, it's a plural word because there are many different visions about how you travel and how you camp. There are different views and opinions, but nobody's fighting and nobody's in a state of discord. 
Especially when we know the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov and how Chassidus expands it, that the whole concept of traveling through the desert, the 42 stops through the desert represent 42 different stages of the development of a person's soul. And that's obviously personal. Each one of us is on our own journey, our own path, which is unique and different to the path and journey of every other Jew. So our journey, the stops and the, the elevation we go through is unique to us. Relative to where our heart, our soul, and our might is, as the Torah expects of us. So it's anticipated that we're all going to travel differently. But the Mechilta is telling us a surprising insight that when it came time to receive the Torah, then everybody was sharing a single heart and they literally beat with a single heart with a single dedication to Hashem. Because they were now standing at the mountain at which they would receive the Torah, that caused them to all share the same sentiment, the same heart. A single heart for all of them. It doesn't even use the expression levav, which is an element of possession or possibly even double, right? Levav includes the Eitzahara as well. Because now we're receiving the Torah and the objective of Torah is to bring peace to the world. That causes absolute unity between all of the Jewish people. To the extent that they no longer even had different opinions. That's the Chiddush of the Mechilta. With that information, then we can explain that when the Jews left Ramses to go to Sukkot, the Torah still used the, the plural expression, they traveled. Because yes, it's true that physically they all moved in one shot, all in, as one unit. But you still cannot describe it in the singular. Yes, everybody's moving in one movement. But that doesn't mean they don't have different views and opinions. They're humans still, Jewish humans at that. That unity of mind, can only be achieved through the Torah, and therefore only happens when they're standing at Har Sinai. Only then do they all share a, certain, a, a single heart. That's why the Torah emphasizes there at Har Sinai, they were as a single entity. Which reminds us that in the rest of their travels, even when they were not necessarily fighting or in a state of discord, they were not all on the same page. They had their own personal views. And therefore the Torah is telling us over here, this is the great effect and impact of the Torah on us, that it brings us into a state of absolute unity. Okay, so the Mechilta is saying people might have disparate perspectives, but the Torah will bring them to be one. Rashi says more than that. Rashi says it's not only that people had disagreements, but now they all agree on a single acceptance of the Torah. But even where previously people had been at loggerheads. Machloikes, Shimein Tarumas. So, Anya Kipshuta, they were literally in a state of discord. The power of Torah is that where everywhere else everybody is fractured, the Torah brings them together. So, the Mechilta says where people have different opinions, the Torah unites them in a single opinion. Rashi says it's more than that. Even when people were literally in a state of fracture and dispute, the Torah brings them into a state of oneness and peace. Let's understand why and how that works. What is so unique about Torah that has this tremendous impact on us to bring the sparrow people together and people who previously were, at least mentally, at war with each other should now be with one heart. Because the truth is, Torah also has a lot of debate, doesn't it? We know that Torah is filled with many different opinions, diverse opinions. In fact, the Chazal tell us the Torah wasn't given to us absolute, with absolute clarity. 
But this man Tesponim Torim and Tesponim Tomei. There is scope to argue 49 reasons why the same thing should be pure or impure, depending on which side of the argument you run. Which means that the Torah actually is designed to produce different opinions. Anybody who's learned Gemara would know that. The only caveat is that all of the different opinions are valid and they are the word of Hashem, even though only one opinion could be the practical application in Halacha. But Torah is designed to accommodate and possibly even encourage different views and opinions. If that is the nature of Torah, how can we say that the Torah itself, which is designed to precipitate so many different opinions, actually brings people together to share a single opinion and a single heart? So you'll say, well, because practically, of course, the halacha will always be decided in one way. There's not multiple ver- versions of halacha. Even though halacha follows a single view. And once we've decided the halacha in a particular way, everybody, regardless of what our personal opinions might be, we're obligated to follow that halachic standard. Doesn't matter, I don't lose my opinion just because the halacha is different. All that happens is, if we decide the halacha is X, then we all, as Jews, behave that way. Doesn't mean we all think that way. As far as our minds are concerned, we may still retain our own diverse opinions. So what about Torah creates this unity? How can we be so sure that the Torah is what brought them all to share a single heart? In other words, standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, not only did they all behave in a unified way, but it caused them all to feel in a unified way. How did that happen? What is the magic of Torah? So to understand that, let's remind ourselves when and how the Torah was given, because it will give us a really important insight, the, the, the central feature of the number three to the whole story of Torah. So, reminding ourselves that we're talking over here about a Pasuk that says, when they were negadahar, where they were at the, t- the, the time to receive the Torah, that's when they were completely united. Vayichan is a singular word. So, Nishadish, what happened at that time is, it was the third month after the Jews left Mitzrayim. Which hints at the fact that this incredible unity achieved through Torah is linked to the significance of the number three, as Torah itself is linked to the significance of number three. Like the Gemara in Shabbos tells us that Torah is linked to the number three. We say, Blessed be he who gave us a threefold Torah, Torah Nevim Ksuvim, Le'am Tlisoi to a threefold nation, Kohanim Levim and Yisraelim, Al Yedei Tlisoi through the person who was the third member of his family, Miram Aaron Moshe, Be'archa Tlisoi in the third month of the year, Nisan Iyar Sivan. The reason the Torah is given in the third month is because the Torah is in is innately and intimately linked to the number three. And that's going to raise a big question for us. Why would the number three be a number that represents unity? We're just telling, we're saying, the Pasuk of says, in the singular, like one person with one heart, surely that is kosher le'echad, surely that's linked to the number one, and by extension, it should be linked to the first month of the Jewish calendar. Because surely the number one and the first month is all about unity. Why are we representing unity with the number three instead of the more obvious number one? We actually see precedent in the story of creation. That the first day of creation is not called the first day, it's called day one. Why is it day one? Because it's the day where it's only the Yavish day in the world and nothing else. Absolute oneness and unity. What's the connection between Achdus and the third month? To get to the number three, you had to put one plus two, or one plus one plus one. In other words, 
pieces, diverse pieces that had to come together in order to create the number three. Surely that's a much lesser achtos and unity than the number one. In order to understand this, let's understand the difference between the number one and what it represents, two and what it represents, and three and what it represents. Because yes, there's this tremendous oneness at the beginning when Hashem creates the world and it's just one, but it's actually not good enough. The distinction between the significance of the numbers one, two, and three are as follows. The number one highlights the fact that there's only a singular existence and there's no room for anything else. Colossian Chazal now, like we've just quoted, on the first day of creation, it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Yochi Debo'i There is only the Eibishter and nothing else that exists in the world. So yes, it's an overwhelming, compelling oneness because there is nothing to contest that oneness. Whereas, Sheini Morales Chalkos, Achtos, the number two represents division which of course is the opposite of unity, like the second day of creation where Hashem divides the high and the low waters or heaven and earth. So one is absolute unity because there's no alternative. Two is division. The power and greatness and innovation of the number three is that it brings one and two together into a new single reality. Like the famous Maimon Chazal, we say every morning in Davening, you have two psukim in the Torah that appear to contradict each other, and you can't make head or tail of how to reconcile them. You get a third pasuk that then helps us to correlate and harmonize the two psukim together. In other words, this is a principle which is paradoxical. There is... One point, there's a different point. They seem to contradict each other. We introduce another perspective that illustrates the contradiction is no contradiction after, after all. It's actually harmony. So, what's the paradox? Because look, the Torah is illustrating to us. Here are two psukim. Not only are they different to each other, like you might have two people with different opinions, as the Mechilta mentioned before. These are psukim that contradict like Rashi said, there's an actual discord over here. There's an actual fracture. The Torah tells us there's a contradiction. That means it's a real contradiction. In other words, we're not talking about two different approaches or some superficial distinction between one pasuk and the And you'll reconcile it. Just do a little bit more research in the two pasukim. You'll see they're not so different after all. These are psukim that are in contrast, contradiction to each other. And therefore, I need a third pasuk to resolve it. And if I don't have that third pasuk, there will be a contradiction. There'll be a contradiction between the pasuk that tells me that Hashem's voice comes out of the Kruvim and the pasuk that tells me that Moshe is standing outside of Oil Moed in order to hear it. So I need a third pasuk that tells us it travels to get to Moshe. But what that third pasuk adds is not further information. Much more importantly, the capacity to synthesize what previously was a contradiction. True synthesis, or I don't want to use the word compromise because that's not a good word. So the, the clarification over here is so that doesn't mean you come along and you say, okay, the valid approach is that pasuk, the other one not so much. That's not achro'a. Rather, what achro'a does is it takes two psukim that left to their own interpretation are actually in contrast, and we now show from this third, higher, overwhelming perspective that they actually work in tandem. They're telling us the same story. Together, they're working in partnership. They are in synthesis, in sync. The same thing applies when you have two opinions in halacha that contradict each other. And then we bring in a third opinion. And we say, okay, we're going to follow the third opinion because it has elements of both opinions. That's because the perspective added by this third opinion is, It's not that the third person weighs in and says, I lend credibility to the one opinion, 
It's because he presents a perspective that includes elements of both opinions, which causes both opinions to acknowledge, yes, this is correct. You have synthesized what we brought to the table, what they brought to the table, into a singular perspective, which is how the halacha should be. So, is much more than just simple achtos. When there's only Hashem in the world, it's not surprising that we have that we have oneness. But when we seem to have contradiction, and then we can bring a perspective or an element or an insight that unites them into a single perspective, that is a huge achievement. The fact that we know from the Gemara Shabbos that there's a link between Torah and the number three, that allows us to understand that what Torah does generally, not only in the case of an argument, but across the board, the impact of the Torah on everything is the same as the impact of the Kosov Ashlishi that brings disparate pieces together into unity. So Torah creates harmony and unity across the board in everything it touches. That means even in those areas of the Torah where it does not appear that how we've decided the halacha is, an, is a harmony of two opinions. We've just chosen the one opinion for, let's say, practical reasons over the other which means we've actually technically rejected the argument of the other side. The Torah's massive insight is that even where you say we're following Beis Hillel instead of Beis Shammai, that doesn't mean Beis Shammai is rejected. It means that Beis Shammai is now harmonized with Beis Hillel. How so? Because when we decide that the halacha follows Beis Hillel, then Beis Shammai, meaning to say the opposition, agrees with this is how the halacha should be. And not loy rak That doesn't just mean that now they will behave in line with halacha because they are religious people who follow the dictates of Torah. So if that's halacha, we have to follow it. But something far deeper happens. They then intellectually come to understand why this is actually the halacha. If that requires them going back and relearning from the perspective that's now been offered by the the, the, the halacha, or however they do it, but they come to accept and understand that that is correct, even though I previously thought differently. Which brings absolute peace between the opposing parties. That is the unique power of Torah, like the Pasuk tells us, Hashem ois the Amoyitain, that the Ebeshe gives us a unique strength, and then Hashem Yibarach Hashem blesses us with peace. You start off your Torah learning by all the investigation and the debate and the argument and research. Opinions for, opinions against. But when we reach the point where according to the rules and the processes of Torah, we have now decided that the halacha follows that view, and that's why we need Hashem We need strength in order to be able to do that. The, the force, the, the fortitude, the strength, the discipline to be able to work to overcome what we originally thought was the right way to understand things. And then to select one of the different opinions as the correct way. That takes a lot of strength and discipline. Then we don't stay in a, in a perspective of, or in a position of strength. I'm the hero. I'm the winner. They picked me. But rather we reach a stage of Sholem. Which means all parties involved are completely, with every fiber of their being, committed to what is now the correct halacha. Which produces absolute peace, harmony, and oneness between everybody who was involved. So, Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai are absolutely unified people in every sphere of their lives, not only in the fact that they acknowledge who was right in this debate. With this in mind, let's go back to a well-known story in the Gemara Rosh Hashanah, it's actually a mission in Rosh Hashanah, about Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Gamliel. So Rabbi Yeshua, according to his calculations, determined Yom Kippur to be on a day that was different to what Rabbi Gamaliel had decided, obviously as the head of the Sanhedrin. So now, Tzivor, Rabbi Gamaliel, 
So Rabbi Gamliel said that Rabbi Yeshua had to appear before him on the day that he had calculated to be Yom Kippur with his walking stick, his staff, and his cash. Which is what Rabbi Yeshua did. Now, there's something about the story that doesn't seem to be absolutely clear. If Rabbi Yeshua had to publicly show that he's actually following the halakha as it was decided by Rabbi Gamliel and his Sanhedrin, then all Rabbi Yeshua had to do was to travel to Rabbi Gamaliel on the day that he had previously believed to be Yom Kippur, from where he lived to Yavne, where Rabbi Gamaliel was, which would have been a distance beyond the maximum amount that you're allowed to walk on Yom And that would have been enough of a public display of the fact that he acknowledges Rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel is correct. Why did he have to come along carrying his stick and his money? What's that going to help? He's showing that he agrees with Rabbi Gamaliel. One of the explanations is because he needs to show that Rabbi Yeshua, who was a brilliant scientist who understood astronomy really well, is not just deferring to Rabbi Gamaliel because he is the head of Sanhedrin and therefore we have to observe what he says. Even though his brilliant calculations indicate otherwise, that's not good enough. Rabbi Yeshua had to make a public statement that he agrees with every fiber of his being, including of his intellect, with what Rabbi Gamaliel has pasconed. Even though previously Rabbi Yeshua had been 100% convinced based on Torah protocols and understandings that Yom Kippur should be on a different day to what Rabbi Gamaliel said, once he accepted that the halacha follows Rabbi Gamaliel, he went back and he worked it through to the point that he came to the intellectual conclusion that Rabbi Gamaliel is correct and it resonated with him. It wasn't purely out of respect or out of Kabbalah uh, how do we know this? He's going to show it in his public statement. That he's going to arrive at Rabbi Gabriel with his stick, his staff, and his money. Because that will reflect the fact that his acquiescence to Rabbi Gabriel has integrated into every part of his system. Every detail. As illustrated by the fact that even the superficial part of Rabbi, Gam- of Rabbi Yeshua's life is on track with Rabbi Gamaliel's halacha. Not only will his staff be part of his big public acknowledgement of Rabbi Gamaliel's halacha, your staff is something you lean on, it helps you in life, helps you walk. Even your money, which we know that Chorif uh, Lotzeis. Cash changes hands very quickly. A person can never claim cash as their own just because maybe they wrote their name on it or something. So it's very superficial to the person. They were all part of this public display of accepting Rabbi Gamaliel's psak on his way to Yavne on the day that he had previously believed to be Yom Kippur because it is critical for Rabbi Yeshua to show that he's not just following out of obedience He's falling because every part of himself to the most superficial part of himself has come around and resonates with what Rabbi Gamaliel said. Let's understand this a little bit deeper. What is the difference between Torah and regular wisdom in spite of the fact that the Torah itself describes itself as our wisdom? Yes, Torah is an intellectual process. Like the Torah says, it is our wisdom and understanding. But Torah has something absolutely unique, exponentially different from regular wisdom as wisdom is. Like the Gemara tells us, uh, the Medrash tells us, If people tell you that there is wisdom amongst the nations of the world, you should believe that, of course. But don't confuse that with the fact that the nations have the wisdom of Torah. No, Torah is a unique kind of a wisdom. So let's understand what's so unique about it. It doesn't really seem to make sense. If we are willing to acknowledge that there are great philosophers in the world of the nations, 
why then does the Torah describe itself as our wisdom in the face of all of the nations? Is it about wisdom or is it not about wisdom? So the explanation is there is something very unique about Torah which is reflected in its name. Because Torah has something intrinsically unique, therefore even the wisdom within Torah is fundamentally different from regular wisdom which is available wholesale. That's why the Torah doesn't say it is wisdom, but rather it is your wisdom. Unique wisdom that you, the Jewish people, have compared to the other nations of the world. So what's so unique about Torah? Let's look at the word. The advantage Torah has over wisdom is that Torah actually means instruction. Because the goal of Torah, which is called the Torah of truth, is not just to expose, illustrate, and teach us what the truth is of things. But Torah also tells us, what do you do with this information? How do you apply it in practice? How should a person conduct themselves because of this wisdom? And that is not something which is available in most philosophies out there. Typically, wisdom doesn't automatically translate into what you should do about it. Regular wisdom, ordinary philosophy says, should you choose to behave in a particular way, this is how it will benefit your life. But nobody tells you what you should do, just tells you this is advisable. Medicine would be a great idea, a great example. Medical science tells us if a person follows a particular diet, does certain exercises, avoids certain behaviors, then they'll be healthy. But there's no medical book that says, thou shalt eat healthy foods and exercise. Because if a person wants, they can harm themselves. Whereas Torah is a totally different approach. You may not harm yourself, not physically, not spiritually. I mean, that's why Torah is our unique wisdom compared to all the other nations. Because the way that we learn Torah is unique. We're always learning, thinking, so what's this going to translate into in practice, in halach? So knowing that it is going to have a practical application in our lives forces us to really invest intellectually in the Torah that we're studying. And because we're invested, we're going to get the true insight. Whereas if a person is learning something as pure theory, no, if I don't get it 100% right, okay, it's not going to impact my life. But when we recognize that everything is going to translate into behavior and decisions, that's going to force us to dig deeper, invest better, and understand the truth as truth is. Therefore, the wisdom of Torah, which is a type of wisdom that has practical application and instruction built into its core, has a totally different depth of experience and of wisdom than any other wisdom. So what causes there to be this tremendous difference between regular wisdom and Torah wisdom? That's because Torah is not regular wisdom, it's divine wisdom and the divine will expressed. Which is the ultimate truth of the capital T. tells us in Tanya that the nature of truth is that it goes from one end to the other, meaning to say it's consistent across all scenarios and all situations. If something is true, then it has to be true in all situations, at all levels, in, across all, all levels. So therefore, when the Torah exposes what the truth is of any scenario that we're analyzing through Torah, 
לא ייתכן שהדברים יישארו מוגבלים רק לשכל האדם. Then it's not possible that the Torah will only be relevant in the intellectual sphere. שבשכלו יובן שעניינו כך, that I'll know intellectually, abstractly, that this is how things are supposed to be theoretically. But I'll behave differently to what I understand. Other philosophies, maybe. I'm a great philosopher, but I don't necessarily behave that way. MS goes right through every element, and therefore whatever I know has to apply to how I behave. In fact, not only does it translate into action, but action is primary. And that's why there's a completely different approach that we need to take in order to master Torah compared to mastering any other wisdom or philosophy. One example is Maimir Azal. The Gemara tells us why is it that typically in most cases the halacha was decided according to Beisidel rather than Beishamai. Even though Beishamai tended to have students who were sharper, more on the ball, quicker. It's because the Beisidel people were soft. They allowed things that perhaps were a little bit uncomfortable or embarrassing for them and they didn't make a fuss. Now that's strange because surely if you're working out halacha, then the people who should be deciding halacha should be the academics, the brightest, the sharpest in the group. Because surely the person who is the sharpest and fastest brain will understand the halacha the best. Surely then the halacha should generally have followed the Beishamai, who are the really harif, the really, you know, iluyim, the, the, the really genius students in the, in the yeshiva. But that's because Torah is not a matter of intellect. In order for a person to be able to encapsulate, to capture, to digest the truth of Torah, which is obviously going to translate into halacha how the Torah wants us to conduct ourselves in practice, Intellect is an insufficient tool in order to help us achieve this. Because even the intellect has a predisposition one way or the other. Some people are intellectually predisposed towards a lenient chesed approach, and some are intellectually predisposed towards a strict gevura approach, and based on that, a person is going to have a bias towards how they determine the halacha. That's the explanation why Beisilil generally looks for the more lenient approach and Beishamai for the stricter approach. That's because, generally speaking, the traits associated with the students of Hillel were Chesed, which leans towards leniency, and the traits of the Beishamai, Samidim, was Gevura, which leans obviously towards strictness. And therefore, yes, the nature of intellect is to objectively explore what the truth of things is. And that's why it is possible for a person to discard their, their bias and predisposition and really understand something objectively when they're learning. Like we see with Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai themselves. Sometimes Beis Shammai goes lenient and sometimes Beis Hillel goes strict. But what cannot be escaped is the type of brain that we have and therefore the type of thinking that we have. And because we are trapped within the nature, the natural processes of our brain, we're not naturally inclined to be able to understand things as they are. But when a person has bitl, which is no longer an intellectual ability. Bitl means I relinquish, I surrender my personal perspective, my personal take, my personal interest and bias. Then I am on track to be able to get the MS because it's no longer me, it's no longer trapped in my understanding. Therefore, by and large, the halacha is decided. What is halacha? The truth of how this plays out. Typically follows because they live with bitl, which is the access point to truth. We're going to see this, that the beginning of the whole shas is with the laws of Shema, and the end of the whole shas is 
about halacha. See, mashas about ma'amikol hashen halacha is b'chol yom kolei. Whoever reviews halacha daily goes to olam haba. So see, mashas binyan shel limit halacha. The end of shas is tachlis, practical. You got to learn halacha so you know how to apply Torah in your life. Because the ultimate purpose of all intellectual study of Torah is to arrive at appropriate halachic conclusions. Because it's only when we're able to apply the theory of Torah in the practice of halacha that we've really captured the truth of what Torah is about. So therefore the conclusion, the seum, the apex of the whole of the Torah is, what are you going to do with this in halacha? To get there, to be able to define the halacha, how do you start the whole process? You say Shema, which is not learning. Shema is acceptance of Hashem's authority. Because when we have that sense of awe of Hashem and submission to Hashem, which is all associated with this Kabbalah soul, accepting Hashem's authority, then then our Torah learning is not a purely academic pursuit, but it's a bitul pursuit. It's all about letting go of self to hear what Hashem has to say. The person realizes that it's all on my shoulders. There's going to be a Jew who's going to behave according to my halachic ruling. It's on my shoulders if what they do will be aligned with what Hashem wants. So God forbid the opposite. And therefore the person is in this tremendous sense of awe that I should be aligned with what Hashem wants. It's not about me and accolades and becoming a big deal and being called a rabbi. It's about divining, determining what Hashem wants. When a person takes that attitude, they let go of self, they submit to Hashem, they learn through a process of bittel, then they get the truth, and then they're able to actually decide the halacha appropriately. Now let's circle back to how we started this conversation. Standing at Har Sinai, you have Torah. Torah brings unity between people who previously had different opinions, like the Mechilta said, or actually are fighting with each other, as Rashi said. How does this work? To the point that everybody acknowledges what the correct halacha is. If there are different opinions about an intellectual concept, then after we resolve the conflict, everybody still retains their personal view. Because the world of intellect accommodates and possibly even encourages different views and opinions. So even when we decide practically that this is the relevant one, those views still remain. Even in the world of wisdom, which is wholesale, available to all humans, Everybody knows that we might have a million opinions, but we can only decide one way to behave. And that's got to be written into law. Because every thinking person knows that it would never be good enough just to leave a world where people do as they choose. So therefore, despite all the variant opinions about something, will follow the majority, decide something into law. And everybody, including the people who don't necessarily agree, the minority, have to follow. But that's just a practical reality of life. That the reality of life is the minority has to defer to the majority in order for society to sustain. But in theory, I retain my theory even though it's not popular, even though it's not practical. That's not how it works with Torah when a psak is decided in Torah that this is going to be the halachic reality. Because when the halachic reality is decided, that now tells us that's the truth, the ultimate truth of what Torah is. Because we are now identifying truth, which as mentioned is true across every sphere, then if this is the Psaka Locha, it also has to be the correct way of thinking about things theoretically. 
And call Nafgaminim the Seichel Shalpikava Chesed. Oh, Seichel Shalpikava Gvurukule. It doesn't matter what my intellectual predisposition is to be lenient and Chesed or strict in Gvurah. Whoever I am, however I think, whatever my perspective, I accept that this is absolute truth. Therefore, when a person learns Torah correctly, when the person is totally in a state of absolute dedication to Hashem and acceptance of Hashem's authority, and Bittel, which opens the person to be in a position to experience and ingest the truth of Torah. When the person hears that the practical decision of the halacha was different to how I imagined it was supposed to be, in fact, what the correct halacha is actually the opposing opinion to mine. Because the person is completely dedicated and submissive to Hashem's higher authority. The person goes back and revisits the topic with new enthusiasm, effort, and depth. Till eventually the person understands in their mind that the halacha is the correct way that even I now understand to be correct, despite my previous understanding. We'll see this distinction reflected in the distinction between the three months, Nisan, Ir, and Sivan. Yes, we originally thought that Nisan is the ultimate month of unity. It's the first month. It's a month that represents Exodus, where we all left together. That's the time we left Mitzrayim. How do we get out of Mitzrayim? Because the Eibishter uh, short-circuited the system. The Eibishter revealed himself and took us out. The entire ex- the experience was orchestrated from on high. Because the nature of this Exodus was all Hashem's doing, not really our doing. So there's no room for debate between the Yidden. The Yidden are not weighing in on this. They should have decided this is what's happening. Who are we to argue or to think differently? And therefore, all the Jews go out of Mitzrayim as a single entity because we're overwhelmed by the divine revelation and miracles. So this concept of Echad, the first step, the first stage, the first reality, represented in the unity at the time of the Exodus. That's something you can see in how the Jews left Mitzrayim. As well as where the Jews were holding as people at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Aleph. The collection of all the Jews from wherever they might have been in Mitzrayim to the departure point at Ramses. As well as their first journey, which was actually crossing the threshold out of Egypt. All of that. It's to carrying them, so to speak, on the wings of eagles. And therefore it was like this. It didn't take a lot of time because Abish is doing the work and Abish doesn't have to go through a process step by step by step. It happens in one shot. What's the designation or description of the Jewish people at the time that they leave? Tzivus Hashem, Abish's army. An army is a place of people who have to accept authority. You cannot start distinguishing between one soldier and the next. We're all equally following orders. Yes, they might think differently, feel differently. Each soldier on the front has a different experience and a different set of feelings and thoughts to the next guy. But their willingness and their requirement to follow orders is across the board. That's Echad. That's Nisan. Because the whole exodus from Egypt is orchestrated from on high. In a way that encapsulates and incorporates all the Jews in one shot. At that stage, the Jews are not focused on or sensitive to what divides them. The different designations or tribes. 
They just feel the thing that unites them, which is Kabbalah We're soldiers in Hashem's army. We all accept Hashem's authority. But we have to also pay attention to the fact, on the other hand, that the unity that they experienced at that point was a unity of action, of behavior. They're all leaving together. But who are these people? Individuals who are very different from each other. It's just that because there's such an incredible, overwhelming spiritual involvement over here, they're not paying attention to their differences, which are very much there. Therefore, our question we asked about the Mechilta earlier, why is it a plural word if they're all moving at once? Because the moving is at once, the individuals are all separate and are a plural nation. Now, the second month of their experience as Jewish people, which is year, that is a month which is dividing and counting each day as a unique day, focusing on a unique element of self-development. And it's pretty much about the Jews now doing their own thing, working through things on their own steam. Well, if the Jewish people are now working on their personal growth, no two people are the same. You can now clearly identify each person is unique. Each person, according to what their particular focus is. But the thing that we've focused on is what follows that. The third month, the time of the giving of the Torah. What the Torah does is now you've got these people who have identified their uniqueness and their differences in, in ER. And they're now uniting with a single heart. Which means it doesn't matter that they have different views. Even if they have outright conflict. The Torah is able to unify them. There's true peace between them. And that gives us a, a, an important lesson. Rabbi Nazakim Avori Betanya, the Altareb explains in Tanya Shin and Abbas Yisrael Tzorch Liyos that Abbas Yisrael, the love of the fellow Jew, has to be the Chol Nefesh Mi Yisrael and Mi Godavat cotton to every single Jewish person from the greatest to the smallest. Levi, why? Because we are all appropriate in Hashem's eyes, or we are all aligned with Hashem, and we all share a single Father. Mitzat Sherish Nafshem Bashem Echad. When you look from the perspective of the root of our souls. But a person could ask, hang on a second. Fine, if I was engaged with the source of a person's neshama, then if we were operating at the depths of our souls, obviously I'd have love for that too. I'd feel the depth of my soul and identify the depth of his soul and we'd connect. We'd love each other like brothers. But that's not our reality. But I'm looking at a Jewish person. I don't see the source of his neshama. And not only that, I'm actually looking at somebody who is so uh, callous and so thickened by the physical materialistic investments that I don't even see the light of his neshama. How can I love that Jew in his current situation? That's the lesson of the Torah, of the singularity of the Jewish people at the, at the foot of Sinai. Despite the fact that they're normally in a state of discord. Who the impact of Torah is. Torah empowers us to be able to introduce absolute unity in a place that is naturally disparate and at, at odds. In fact, it produces a unity between us that is even more profound than the unity we have at the level of the source of Anishamas. A point where we are naturally one, like the first day of creation, like Nisan, where it's not a surprise that we're united. Like we've illustrated, the greatness of the three over the one, that when you bring disparity into unity, that is far more profound than when there was just simple unity. 
The first port of call of our Abbas Yisrael should be to those so-called lowly Jews who are not so in touch with their Nishamas. Who seem to be so distant and at disparate from us. As the Torah alludes, there, a place of distance, a place of separation. That's where you have Vayichan, absolute unity. And not just in theory, but in practice, that we actually become a single entity. And when we succeed in doing this and having this incredible unity between us, and not just any unity, but specifically unity that is driven by Torah, represented by the Pasuk, opposite the mountain. Including the very important requirement that every Jew on earth should own a letter in one of those collaborative communal Torahs that is written in Yerushalayim, the purpose of uniting the whole Jewish people, that unity through Torah will be an appropriate um, preparation and a vessel to get to the point of the new Torah that will be revealed when Mashiach comes, Kilo Terosa Shom Mashiach, Begulo Amitis Vashlema, the day Mashiach Tikkenim Bimheira Vyomeno Mamash, to be revealed through Mashiach, may it happen immediately.